Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city. What you just heard was a uh, Estonian punk rock song written in 1989. Uh, it was during the Gorbachev liberations. Uh, that song was about how things can, you know, suddenly go backwards with a change in leadership, and suddenly people are being sent to Siberia once again. Very interesting. Uh, you forgot to uh, introduce our show. Oh yeah. We are uh, listening to tracks from abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, here we have Alex Troxel and I'm Seth Martosh and. Alex, you're very knowledgeable about uh, our, our country of the day today. We're visiting Estonia. I just couldn't help <laughs> myself to get into the music. It had energized me uh-huh. to start. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest. I'll, I'll come clean here. I'm not actually an Estonian scholar or anything like that. Mm. But uh, where I got that information was from one of our interviewees this week, right. uh, Professor Kasakamp, who is a uh, Estonian historian, I suppose. Right. And uh, we're going to hear from him later today. Yes. Um, for those of you who may be new to the show, Tracks from Abroad is a student-run radio show here at the University of Toronto where we interview students from different countries, talk a little bit about their culture, about uh, music and food, whatever really they want to talk about. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like we mentioned today, we're going to Estonia and we talked to a father-daughter duo. First up, we, we have uh, a student at the university, Kaisa, who is uh, Professor Kasakamp's daughter. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting because 
speak with both of them and uh, you know hear their different perspectives uh, on their country and learn a bit about uh, Estonian culture. Yeah, especially because Professor Kasakam was actually born here. Right. But his daughter was born in Estonia, yeah. Kaisa, when when they moved there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we learned a lot of interesting things. It didn't make the cut, unfortunately, but I was very excited to learn about how the Estonian uh, government is all their um, government forms and their government services are completely right. digitized. Yeah. So tax returns, all you have to do is it's pre pre filled out. You just go to the website. You confirm that. Would be uh, nice. That would be so nice. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, interesting stuff that, uh, unfortunately, didn't make the cut. But uh, we do have a lot of interesting chat with you today, and we're going to start it by throwing it to our interview with Kaisa. I'm from Estonia, and I'm also actually half Finnish, so my mom is Finnish, and my dad is Estonian, and I grew up in Estonia in this place called Viimsi, which is about 30 minutes from Tallinn, which is the capital. And I went to school there until grade seven, and I moved to Toronto and went to grade nine here. So I skipped a grade just because the Estonian system, the ages are different. So here, I went to high school in Toronto, and now I'm a U of T. I'm a third year now. I'm studying um, ethics, society, and law, and I'm minoring in environmental ethics and actually Finnish studies, which is really fun, although it's a really small program. So I get to practice Finnish language a bit. That's cool. And... When we talked to your dad, he was explaining how um, Estonia has a very cutting-edge digital world. All the mm. government websites are all very efficiently put together. What you've been learning, that technical aspect, that early on in your education, or is that something that comes later in high school? I remember in like fourth, fifth grade, maybe even third, we had computer classes. So we did like some like rudimentary computer, not like actually coding or anything, but it was more like we had to know how to put websites in, know some like basic softwares and things. And I remember everyone kind of hating. <laughs> it was one of those things that I realized only later on why we had mm. computer lessons and classes and why it was important. But it was like good. I mean, every school usually has desktops mm. available. So you have classes. It's like a basic, I don't know, it's like English class. I think that's still more effective than our computer lab here, which my experience was a lot of kids playing Minecraft and not yeah. a lot of... Uh, <laughs> we had one called, um, it was like Tux Paint or something like that. Mm, we also did Tux with, Paint, with actually. With a little penguin? We did. Yeah, yeah, so we would go to computer class and just pretend to do our work, but everybody's in the back just like drawing yeah. and like stamping stuff. But we actually had like practices, like we had tasks on yeah. Tux Paint, like we had to do that. And we got marks on what we created sometimes. Wow. In general, I think that it's modeled around some, like, maybe U.S. or something else. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think it's, like, the things that we did were always original. There right. were definitely some, like, American softwares and things that we learned. So could you remind us about why you ended up coming to Canada? Yes. So my father is a professor here at University of Toronto, and he's the chair of Estonian studies. So we moved here because he had got the job opportunity and because also my grandparents moved here during World War II and have lived here for over 60 years, probably. And so we came here. They're getting pretty old. So also to take care of them and to be closer to them. And it just seemed like a good opportunity. And what's it like having your dad at the university? 
It's kind of funny. I, I've had friends who would mm -hmm. take his classes, and it's always really funny because they're always like, oh, he gives like paper tests and all these things, uh -huh. and we hated it so hard. And I'm just there, like, you know, when I'm at home, I did the tests and I tried mm -hmm. it, and I actually didn't seem that hard. But um, in general, I think it's just fun. We don't actually talk about his work as much as home, mm -hmm. just because I think it's like a bit more confidential, and he doesn't want me to like get too much of an in into the university life. But in general, it's fun. He sometimes I get free coffee in his office, and that's my biggest Perfect. success story. Yeah. <laughs> what about just having someone who's very knowledgeable about Estonian history? Has that sort of shaped your perception of Estonia and your identity? A bit more. There's definitely like things I think when I'm older that I've realized and we talk about more. When I was younger, it was more so when we would travel. We would go to like every single church and every like we had to read every plaque and kind of learn about the different countries and stuff like that. And I think that he was very adamant on us actually going to all the historic spots and kind of museums and things like that. Mm -hmm. And in that way, but when it comes to Estonian history, I remember at least in school, I got such a bad taste in my mouth for it because it was so it's like medieval. Like, mm. you know, you learn about knights and all these things that I didn't care about when I was so young so I think like after that I didn't really consider it as much but now when we moved here there's a big Estonian community in Toronto so getting involved in different like they have lectures they have like archives they have Estonia Music Week which is the small music festival that happens almost every year around May in Toronto so through things like that I've learned more and then through that maybe I talk to my father about certain things and then he enlightens more about them and then I kind of learn more about Estonian history that I actually will remember because mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that there have been many times where he tells me things and I've just completely been doing something else. So I have to um, confess to that. <laughs> But recently, yes, he has, in a way, awakened my interest in Estonian history. And I think it's also through U of T and learning about different things and the current like Russian-Ukrainian war and in general, like I feel like it's just something that has really kind of reawakened in me. So you mentioned the Estonian Music Week. Is there mm. a song that you could play for us that we might hear at Estonian Music Week? Sure. There's this band called Pulup, and they have a song called Martafana, kind of experimental, folky band. Cool. They do music that's almost like avant-garde, if mm -hmm. you're <laughs> folky but weird. It's like one of those, like, it's not typical Estonian music, but mm. it's definitely like kind of trying to be that. That's cool. We'll have a listen, and we'll be right back with Kaisa on Tracks from Abroad. Oh, 
Welcome back to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. Today we're here talking with Kaisa from Estonia. Kaisa, I wanted to ask you a little bit about something also that your dad had brought up when we spoke with him, about the festival Laulupidu. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could tell us a little bit more about it and if you've had your own experiences there, mm-hmm. uh, if you could share that as well. Sure. I mean, it's a big song festival. It's almost like the Olympics of Estonia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it has happened since, what is it? 1869 and it's almost like a like a big protest started off as that and now it happens every I think four years or so and I've attended Mm -hmm. I have never sang there because it's really hard to actually sing 
although there's like what like maybe a hundred thousand people singing on the stage it's a really competitive like choir process to get there so every school usually has choirs and i was in a school choir but we didn't qualify we were bad wow. singers apparently we didn't it's like you need to memorize all these songs and you need to kind of be really good at it um and then you get to go and then you practice and it's this like whole big process so i only remember actually going and attending but it's a really powerful experience to be there and witness so many thousands of people singing in unison or at the same time. And the amount of precision and like planning and everything that goes into it, it's truly impressive. I don't think that there's anything like it. It's a lot of songs get repeated because the audience goes like encore. Yeah. And like, it's just, I mean, the audience itself is also like basically half of Estonia attends mm -hmm. either as a singer audience or anything. Mm -hmm. So... And it's televised. This summer, actually, I think there was some kind of youth song festival going on, and I was watching it on my laptop. So it is something that is very personal to a lot of Estonians. It is something that every person knows about and either attends. There's a lot of choirs here from Toronto that actually attend because it's easier to get there because if you are like an international Estonian choir, mm. the process of getting there is not as tedious. You don't need to be that good. Right. You can go, you're like an honorary, a little choir. So I'm trying to maybe join a choir here and then I get to actually yeah. go and sing on the stage and that would be really neat. But yes. You said it was, it's a personal thing for a lot of Estonians. Could mm. you say a bit more about, you know, what that is? I mean, it's very nationalistic for sure. I mean, it's because mostly because of the history, because it started as the singing revolution mm -hmm. and it's the thing that kind of got Estonia its independence in a way. So it's one of those personal things where a lot of people are reminded of their history, things that like in everyday life you might forget. When you go there, you're in unison with so many thousands of people. They all share the same heritage, same nationality usually. Of course, there's many people who come to observe the festival. When I've been there, I see a lot of people crying, feeling really prideful to be Estonian. It feels like Independence Day, <laughs> but it's just, for, I think for smaller countries, it just means so much more just to know that they were able to kind of create this atmosphere in this country and there's something to be very proud of and to be proud of being Estonian. And then you're also kind of connected to the elements of care for your country and care for other people. So you're like, I you almost feel less selfish and more community-minded. And do you think that's something that's translated into the younger generations who weren't around for the singing revolution? For sure. I think that's like the main contact they have with history. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest contact they have. Just going there to sing and you're singing these songs that were sung during the first festivals where independence was gained. Like learning those songs too. Like some of them might have uh, maybe phrases of Estonia is the country of whatever fatherland something like that or some of them might have like prettier messages that are like we're flying towards the like bee hive or something like that there's just there's a lot of symbolic imagery in them mm -hmm. they're not necessarily about war or they're not about violence usually they have way more like poetic beautiful messaging mm -hmm. in my opinion mm -hmm. Are you nervous at all in the future that that message might not be translated as much to the younger generation and kind of losing that integral part of Estonian history? Not really. When I see the youth today still participating in choirs, I see even my friends who don't seem like the very like nationalistic or in any way they're kind of 
maybe not as connected to Estonian heritage, I see them still going to like choir practice and I see them still like valuing that as something almost sacred. It's almost like like a little spiritual, like a lot of Estonians are not religious. It's one of the least religious countries in the world. And I feel like that sense of community that, for example, church would give you mm-hmm. is kind of created there. So most of the songs even are very religiously oriented. It's more yeah about Estonia. Yeah, and some of them are about like nature. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, they're very um, diverse in that way, I think. Tell us a little bit about the nature and the natural beauty of Estonia. What can oh. you say to that? Well, Estonia is really flat, <laughs> it's, um, and it's really small. However, one of my favorite things in Estonia, because there's no, no mountains, really. There's maybe a hill. It's like only a few hundred meters. <laughs> but um, one of the prettiest things is the marshlands and the bogs. There's a lot of beautiful bogs that people can actually visit and hike on. There's like little trails that are created on the bog. But it's one of those places where a lot of people go swimming. A lot of people will wake up at like 5 a.m. and see the like mist or fog that's created and it's one of the most beautiful things it feels like a really sacred ground and they're like what like 8,000 years old these bogs and that's one of the pastimes that we used to do with our family like go on a little day trip hiking in the bog and I think that's one of the most beautiful things in the summers or winters even you can go there in the winter too and it's beautiful that I look forward to. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between the mindset that an Estonian person has to the environment versus somebody that you might find in Canada? I guess like it depends on who you are in Canada, mm-hmm. right? Because it's usually you talk about the Western mindset that is really anthropocentric. I mean, human centric, like we are the ones who are kind of able to manipulate the ground, manipulate everything around us, kind of do whatever, destruct or like it's domination basically i think a lot of estonians at least the ones who value nature higher usually see it more as a harmony and more as a part of everyday life they don't see it as like i need to like go somewhere far away to like being nature they see it as a part of their everyday surroundings and they feel like they're always a part of it more so at least i think a lot of people who i talk to my friends would resonate with that and in general i feel like a lot more like refuge is taken also in nature like it's usually like people go on walks in forests almost daily because there's just so much forest around and things just take place in more naturalistic grounds I guess I mean sauna culture is really big in Estonia as it is in Finland and I think sauna also is something that usually is by a lake by a sea or somewhere in the forest and that connects people even more so with the environment because you're cleaning yourself but then you also maybe hop in a lake or go in the snow or something like that but that's a very common experience for all Estonians so I feel like in that way they also connect more with wherever they are. Well on that note is there another song that you could recommend for us that we can play? So this is a famous Estonian folk song that is really close to like a lullaby and I just really like this rendition of it. And it's very peaceful and it talks about youth and the title means when I was still young. All right. Well, thank you for the recommendation. We're going to have a listen to Kuimina Ales Norvelolin by Ret. And you're listening to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM.
Hello and welcome back to Tracks from Abroad. Today we're talking with Kaisa about Estonia. And Kaisa, I wanted to ask you about your studies in ethics, society, and law. What led you to study that? I was in a high school in Toronto that had this laws program. It's like law in action within schools. And I remember doing that and I kind of felt that it was really interesting. Just learning about the Canadian charter, learning about indigenous rights and law in Canada, learning about that in general and I guess mm. I just kind of continued with that because I didn't really know what else to do mm-hmm. um, and since my dad is a historian I for some reason did not even consider learning history <laughs> yeah. just as a retaliation maybe in one way or another but yeah it is just I guess ethics is something that I like and then just the law aspect I guess was something that I kind of knew is there a specific issue that sort of excites you, gets you passionate, or is it just the general experience of studying law? I guess it's the general experience of studying. I, I really like to learn about different things and kind of have a really diverse perspective on the world. I just really like learning about different worldviews and different kinds of experiences that people have, especially, I think, for a lot of people coming from different places and feeling like the feeling that spark. I guess it's just one of those where you kind of want to know about other people's experiences and so on just because you feel like yours is unique in one way or another. Do you have any friends back in Estonia that are studying the same kind of things as you and have a much different approach or perspective on these types of issues as well? I don't actually have that many people who study what I'm studying. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends who study psychology or acting or something like that. But I think they're all really interested about what I'm studying here because, at least in high school, they don't learn as much about American history. Mm -hmm. They don't really learn about all the social issues and problems that we discuss here. It's like the education is not maybe as global. It's kind of Europe-centered in a way, or more like even Estonia-centered sometimes. So when I tell them about 
indigenous issues here they wouldn't have known anything about it or even like i know that a lot of my friends never even learned about the slave trade atlantic slave trade or things like that so there's some gaps that maybe in their education system they don't learn and there's some gaps here that we don't learn about their education like not their education system but about that hemisphere region which all is logical why that doesn't happen there's so many things to learn about so i think it's more so that i always have a really interesting discussion with them for them to learn more about the things that are going on here and kind of putting things into perspective for them and understanding how like maybe how things happen in north america and how what the u.s is doing and what the kind of social unrest around here is more so what would you say those topics are that you think Canadians and students studying in Canada get the impression are global and universal problems that you don't think are actually that universal? I think we just, a lot of students here don't really understand the kind of maybe post-Soviet, like how a lot of people might see Russia as a bigger threat, the government of Russia mm-hmm. as a bigger threat than it is. I think it's more so just a different kind of people tend to really villainize the U.S. in a lot of things and blame every single world problem on the U.S. when a lot of that also would go to Russia from the Eastern European perspective or post-Soviet perspective. And people don't really maybe fully understand why like smaller countries like Estonia like need NATO to survive or need to be in the European Union to survive and what that history is and how sovereign countries kind of deserve to be sovereign and so on. So I think there's just some things that maybe have come up with the recent Russia-Ukraine war that when I'm in school here, I sometimes feel like students don't fully understand or study. And I mean, I'm very biased. I am Estonian. (laughs) But um, in that way, kind of is a bit maybe unfortunate just to kind of lack that fully, in my opinion, global understanding of history and colonization. Interesting. Do you think you could recommend us one more song? Yeah, I can recommend you my favorite kind of jazz groovy song from the Estonian Soviet Republic. So this is an Estonian song that's called Alone But Free by Mario Gut. And it's just this really groovy, it's in this album, funk disco jazz from Soviet Estonia. And I think it's a good continuation of this conversation. Well, we're going to take a listen to Yuxi Kuid Vabana. And we'll be right back on Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM.
Hello and welcome back to Tracks from Abroad. Uh, earlier in today's episode, we were speaking with Kaiser, so thanks again for speaking with us. And we've got a packed show today, so I think we're just going to go straight into the next interview. Could you tell us a bit about that, Seth? Yeah, uh, we now talk to, as we mentioned before, Kaiser's dad, Professor Andres Casacamp, uh, who, if you want to know a little bit more about him, actually has a Wikipedia page uh, Excellent. with some of his uh, published books and journals on his uh, studies. And uh, we're going to speak to him and learn a little bit more about Estonia. Start by telling us a little bit about your, your origin. Well, actually, I'm Estonian-Canadian. I was born in Toronto and actually I went to U of T as a student. Uh, but then after my postgraduate work in the UK, then I, in the 90s, I went to Estonia. Estonia had become independent when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And since I'd studied Estonian history and was interested in Estonian politics, I went there and I became a professor in Estonia. Um, and I came back to Toronto only five years ago because Toronto has the only chair of Inst Estonian studies in, uh, in North America. And that's because the community here, the Estonian Canadian community, is the largest one in North America. And they endowed this chair uh, back in the 1980s. And the previous professor who held the chair retired, went back to Estonia, and then it was kind of an offer I couldn't refuse to, to come back, even though I was very happy in Estonia. Mm -hmm. So was that community, the, the largest Estonian community here, something that got you interested in Estonian history, or was it some other uh, influence? Um, well, to be to be frank, it's um, uh, it was the sort of fate of this nation during the Second World War, including the fact that uh, the Soviets uh, arrested and deported and killed my grandparents, which led to which was a similar story for many Canadian Estonians who became then refugees at the end of the Second World War, um, and that's like most of the community has all come after the Second World War uh, because of that. But very few of my contemporaries were interested in history. They all uh, came to U of T and studied you know, engineering or wanted to become dentists or lawyers or whatever else. But I was the odd one who had an interest in, in history. And uh, because there was this chair of Estonian studies, which was set up when I was still a student here, then I had that opportunity to, to uh, be involved in Estonian affairs academically. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you study? Is there something specific, a specific part of Estonian history? Well, the chair of Estonian studies has to <laughs> cover everything, right? And yeah. Anyone who's interested about anything to do with Estonia, I'm the go-to guy. Okay. Right? So, but, but specifically, um, my own dissertation was on uh, fascism in Estonia between the two world wars. Um, but I've also written sort of a general history of the Balt of the three Baltic states. Estonia is usually too small to be uh, mm -hmm. discussed alone, and there's no chair of Latvian or Lithuanian studies, mm -hmm. so I cover all three in the history department. I teach the course on, on modern Baltic history, for instance, uh, but I'm also at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, where I teach some more contemporary issues uh, related to fascism, which is the, the populist radical right at present. Mm -hmm. uh, so talking about, uh, well, for instance, the other week, uh, a guy called Gert Wilders, uh, the Freedom Party in the Netherlands, won the elections there. And that sort of made big headlines about the rise of the, the far right in, in Europe and what that will mean for uh, European integration going forward. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of other thing I teach. And uh, this semester I've been teaching in the history department sort of general sort of modern European history. Right. Have you seen 
a rise in these, you know, right-wing parties and, uh, you know, political ideals in the world over the last little while? Well, I've, I've been studying this for a few decades already, mm-hmm. so I've seen these waves, and uh, there are always headlines about the rise of the far right or the radical right or the populist right, whatever you want to call them, um, and it's completely dependent on the context uh, of the countries, right? So they, there's ups and downs, but at the moment it seems to be uh, on the rise again. Mm. Uh, but say, take uh, South America. You had uh, the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, who was following in Trump's footsteps, but he was voted out. He's left mm-hmm. office. But now you have the new guy in Argentina, mm-hmm. um, who seems to also be a right-wing uh, populist, although of a kind of a different style. So it's really dependent on, on the context. But what is perhaps new is we used to regard these far-right movements as being something kind of just like a, a protest, sort of a flash in the pan that sort of, sort of they have a sudden rise and then they disappear after a while. But now they're becoming sort of very much rooted in political systems all over the place. And they're also kind of learning um, best practices from others. Uh, similar movements, and there's lots of transnational cooperation among them, which didn't used to be the case, and that makes them more effective and also more dangerous, Almost I would like, argue. like mutating kind of, right? Yeah. So is that, when you say it's more entrenched, you're saying that these, what we thought were just flash-in-the-pan movements right. have now found uh, a more effective way of like, actually changing the system to have lasting impacts? Yeah. Well, take a look at, for instance, one of the originals that has inspired a lot of other parties. Uh, it's the Le Pen's party in France, mm-hmm. uh, which has been around since the uh, 70s and has always been a marginal party. But in every uh, subsequent president, presidential election, they've been doing a little bit better. And they're sort of the main opposition party now. Right. And they haven't disappeared. They've been kind of building their strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, all along. So I think that's uh, an example. Also, the other, the other thing which is perhaps new is that uh, mainstream conservative parties are kind of um, adopting themselves uh, because they see this challenge on the right and they're sort of becoming more mainstream conservative parties being more anti-immigrant and getting into all these culture war issues. Uh, so they're kind of trying to steal the thunder Mm-hmm. of the far right, but they're actually becoming more like the far right themselves. Yeah. Uh, well, the best example, of course, obviously being the Republicans in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right. And is there something from your studies in Estonian history that you think lets you see these movements around the world through a certain lens or something that you think is you know, pressing from Estonian history that's now playing out around the world? Well, um, from the Estonian side, when I started studying this, the, the, the contemporary radical right, that is, mm-hmm. uh, there was nothing in Estonia. Estonia mm-hmm. was one of the fortunate countries uh, you know, a decade ago, or two decades ago, that didn't have this sort of movement when most other European countries did. It's not the case now. In the last uh, five, six years, then the, the far right has also become strong in, in Estonia, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is new is that they're sort of, as I was saying earlier, that they're sort of very transnational, that they're aping and imitating um, you know, what's being said. You know, if, if Steve Bannon says something or Tucker Carlson says something in the U.S., that that same sort of media mm-hmm. space um, that the alt-right has is it's, uh, you know, things that don't, wouldn't you think like 
it's not an issue in Estonia, but they get uh, transposed, and that applies to all these other countries. All these American culture war issues all of a sudden become issues elsewhere mm. where they hadn't been an issue. Well, thank you, Professor Kasekamp, and we're going to take a listen to one of your recommendations, uh, Sata Sata by Mary Kalkun, who we were lucky enough to see perform at Mundial Montreal earlier uh, in November. Sata 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 vihma kõnõsa Ma ei pelge sinno, ailloma sussa Tule, 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 tule kõnõsa Sukka rinda vista ja subel purjeta Tule, tule, laiva, laiva, hinda lehita Tuubel hää on sõita ja ilma kullelda Korgel, korgel taala kaia hää Hinda helü alla mõtsu päele hõigada
Hello, hello, and welcome back to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Seth Martosh, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Troxel. Yep. And today we are in the studio with Professor Kasakamp from Estonia, and kind of touching on music in terms of from a political lens. How has, uh, you know, Estonian people used music to kind of protest or, you know, voice their opinion? Oh, well, that's an excellent question because Estonians are quite famous for choral singing. Um, and Estonia regained its independence in 1991 as the result of something that we refer to as the Singing Revolution. Um, there's actually a good documentary about it. It's called exactly that, the Singing Revolution, um, which uh, happened in 1988 when there was a spontaneous gathering at the Song Festival grounds, and sort of political protest songs were sung, and sort of the hardline Communist Party leadership was was removed. Um, but Estonia, but also Latvia and Lithuania, to, to a lesser degree, have these uh, national song festivals every every five years, which is kind of like an Estonian Olympics almost, uh, in that it's the biggest event that everyone prepares for for years. And so you have like 20,000 people singing together on stage. Uh -huh. And at the song festival grounds, you know, over 100,000 people in the audience, mm -hmm. mm. Um, and uh, you know the Estonian whole population is just over a million, so it's a sizable portion right. of the country is all gathered together for that one uh, event. Is there a, a certain song that that is used in this sort of music, or? Well, it's a, it's a whole day event, so yeah. there's the repertoire is extensive. Um, but there are a few sort of patriotic songs that sort of where they begin with and uh, some patriotic songs at the end with. And in, in between, they have all sorts. They have you know, kids' choirs, women's mm -hmm. choirs, men's choirs, mixed choirs, um, or pieces with orchestra, uh, some things that are more folksy, some things which are, are new and contemporary to have, add some zest. And they've also become quite international. There's like lots of people from, the, from well, everywhere in the world who want to, participate in this right but it's all in Estonian well, that's a really interesting part of the Estonian music scene is there another aspect of Estonian music that you'd like to highlight in a song hmm um, I'm a bit I'm a bit stuck with that one <laughs> there I mean it's the it's the choral singing the other is sort of the pop and rock stuff is well the very big like several of these songs that I chose here are um, sort of uh, sort of ethno uh, folk stuff, or, or tinged with it. Like even the the metal song there is this sort of uh, is this uh, I don't know what the how you would call that genre, but it also kind of has features bagpipes. Like Estonians also have bagpipes. It's not mm. only the Scots. Well, lots of lots really? of European people. They're not as big as the Scottish bagpipes, but it's the same principle. Do you think that developed independently, or do you think? Yeah, yeah, no. It's like it's not like the Scots are famous for it, but they're not the only ones right. who have it in yeah. their folk music. It's just everyone knows the Scottish one. Huh. Yeah. Um, just like, uh, for instance, saunas. That's a big Estonian thing. Yeah. Everyone knows Finnish saunas. Right. Right. But Finns and Estonians are very closely related. Mm -hmm. The language is uh, almost mutually intelligible. They're neighbors. Uh, so sauna goes back to you know, a long time, tens of thousands of years ago when they were uh, still more or less you know, same nomadic peoples. I was mm -hmm. curious a little yeah. bit about the the Finnish relation in terms mm -hmm. of 
sometimes being considered part of the Baltics and sometimes not. What's the uh, what's the consensus on that? If there if there is one. <laughs> well, Finns certainly don't like to be considered part of huh. of the Baltic, but uh, and Estonians often like to th- consider themselves Nordic rather than than Baltic. Um, but if you look at in terms of the Baltic Sea region, mm-hmm. uh, then of course Finland is a Baltic yeah. country. But usually people always refer to simply Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania as the three uh, Baltic countries. But in the region itself, people talk more and more about a, Balt- a wider Baltic Sea region, which is encompasses the Nordic countries, the three Baltic countries, you know, parts of Germany and Poland right. uh, as well. So there's lots of sort of uh, interaction, cooperation, commercial activity between them. And basically, they're all countries that now belong to the European Union and also and also NATO. Mm. Uh, so the Baltic Seas become very uh, well. The countries have become very close again, and that's the only exception being Russia, which is of course the troublemaker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> is there a reason why Estonia is not interested with associating with the other Baltic countries? Or? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> well, basically, this this came up. Um, in the 1990s, they were when they were all three together stuck in the Soviet Union, and when they struggled to get out of it through the singing revolution, then they cooperated very closely. But as soon as they regained their independence in 91, they all sort of wanted to go their own way. Mm-hmm. And part of it was to get into the European Union and NATO as quickly as possible and distance themselves from, from Russia. Um, and Estonia was quicker with its uh, reforms than Latvia and Lithuania at that time. And Estonians thought that if they kind of rebrand themselves as Nordic mm. and they have that sort of connection to Finland, which the others don't, because Latvian and Lithuanian are Baltic languages, which are very similar to each other. Right. Mm. They're Indo-European. Latvian and Lithuanian is closer to English than it is to Estonian mm. uh, linguistically. Mm. Um, so because of the Finnish connections, Estonians were eager to be sort of Nordic, but also because being Baltic back in the 90s could be easily confused with being Balkan. And during the 90s in the Balkans, what did you have? Ethnic cleansing, civil war, didn't want to have that image, mm-hmm. whereas the Nordics were all about uh, Volvo and Ikea and sort of uh, great uh, prosperity and lifestyle. and. Um, so that was, was part of the pitch of Estonia rebranding itself Nordic as to make, make it more acceptable uh, to joining the European Union, mm-hmm. um, not being just one of these kind of yeah. uh, strange, exotic Eastern European countries that we know a little about, but connecting. That, of course, did, didn't go sit well with the, the Latvians or Lithuanians. Right. But in the end, there's a sort of common connection between a lot of the countries in that area. Yeah. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah, and in the end, all three joined the European Union at the same time, and they, you know, cooperate very closely uh, at the moment. Right. Uh, so we'll take a listen to the the one that you mentioned with the uh, the metal song with some bagpipes in it. Yeah. Ah, sure. That's the one by Metzatel. Right. So we'll have a listen to that on CIUT eighty nine point five on Tracks from Abroad, and we'll be right back.
Hello and welcome back to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. Hopefully you've enjoyed the smattering of rock and folk music that you've heard from Estonia today. And if you're interested in learning a bit more about the Estonian community, uh, the Tartu residence at, uh, in downtown Toronto is actually the heart of the Estonian diaspora. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the basement there's an archive, there's a banquet where... Uh, uh, Estonian events are held. Yes, and uh, that residence is how the endowment for the Chair of Estonian Studies was set up here at the University of Toronto, and that's why uh, at the university we have the only professorship in Estonian Studies in North America. And uh, Tracks from Abroad is made by a volunteer crew of students who we cannot do the show without. Our board tech, Matthew, our editors, Simon and Rosa, social media managers, Akshita and Isabella, and our directors, Elzebieta and Rosa now also, mm-hmm. now that uh, Jesse's taken uh, some time away. So Yeah, and uh, coming up to end the show, we're going to have a listen to the Canadian-Estonian artist by the name of Kylie Killian. Uh, Kylie Killian, there we go. Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you haven't noticed, uh, Seth is the one who does the pronunciation <laughs> of uh, all the songs and most of the artists. You're doing good, you're doing yeah, good. Yeah, I, I do my best. And uh, after that, we'll listen to Indigenous Waves. Uh, this has been Tracks from Abroad on CIUT. Have a good night, everyone. One, two, three, four. When we met far away in another time and place, it was as if, as if, all in an instant, despite the distance, you were meant for me. Show me, show, show, show. Free. 